0: Uh, If you have your Bibles, take them and turn to the book of Acts. Uh, I'll be reading, and I I read every week uh, when we preach out of the English Standard Version. So if you have a Bible app and you want to be with the same one, or if you have several different Bibles at home uh, and you want to be reading out of the same translation that I do, it's the ESV, and it's not because I think it's superior to other translations. Most modern translations are very good. Uh, They have different methods of interpretation, but we won't bore you with that right now. But just for the ease of reading along, if you want to be reading out of the same translation as me, it's the ESV. Um, The book of Acts is uh, about the continued work of Jesus Christ. Uh, It's about how his kingdom is spreading throughout the entire world by the power of the Holy Spirit and the bold witness of his church. It is the continuation of the story that Luke recorded in his his gospel. Luke, who wrote the gospel of Luke, also is the author of Acts. And it is really one volume concerning the life and the work and the ministry of Jesus Christ. The gospels talk about Jesus' earthly ministry up to his death and resurrection. And then the book of Acts picks up with the story and shows how it continues on. I think the book of Acts will challenge us. And I encouraged you, uh, well, just through Facebook. So if you're not on Facebook, you didn't you didn't get this. I both encouraged and challenged you to read the book of Acts um, in one sitting, cover to cover, if you will, and to generally pick up that practice for your Bible reading. Uh, it's good, of course, to study and you know, get in on what is this one verse, what does this one word even mean? pulling out your commentaries. That's all, that's all good and that's that's appropriate. But the other end of that is also appropriate, and I think it's seldom done. You just need to read the whole thing at once if you can, books of the Bible, that is. Uh, most of them can be read that way. A uh, book of Psalms would be pretty challenging, and it's not really necessary for Psalms because it's not one unified volume of you know, an argument or, or making a point. But for those books that can, you should read in one sitting. Now, Acts will be a bit challenging because it'll take you over an hour, uh, maybe two if you're a slow reader, which is perfectly fine if you are. So you may have to do it in the evening where you'll take a break and come back to it. But I'm telling you, if you do it in one sitting, you will see things you never saw otherwise, and you will have a level of comprehension for the books of the Bible that you had never had before. You just get to see the whole thing. You just, oh, okay, I, I get it. You know, when you get in too close, you, you often lack the perspective needed really to make sense of things. So Do that with the book of Acts. I I dare you to try it and uh, tell me how it goes. Um, But I think both in reading it all together yourself and then as we preach through uh, the chapters here, I think the book of Acts is going to challenge us. I think it will cause us to consider how much we prefer the kingdoms of this world as opposed to God's kingdom. I think it will challenge us in terms of how much we rely on the strength, strategy, and wisdom of this world as opposed to the strength and the wisdom that God supplies. And I think it will also challenge us regarding whether or not we are willing to be bold witnesses of what we have seen and heard. With that, let's, let's read all of chapter 1 this morning and see how the, continue, the, the story of Jesus Christ continues on. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while they were gazing into the heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all, about 120, and said, Brothers, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man, Judas that is, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, al-keldamah, Keldama, is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office." So one of the men, excuse me, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two: Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You Lord who know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Let's pray together. And thank God for his word and his work. Father, we do, we thank you. We gather here in your name Our hope is in you, and your word is good news to us. It is a lamp unto our feet. We love you, and we love your word, and we thank you that you lead us by your word. This morning, would you continue to lead us and guide us, incline our hearts to you, convict us of sin and our wayward ways, and help us to repent and turn away from them and back to you. Give us understanding this morning from the book of Acts and help us to see what it is you want us to see, to feel what you want us to feel, and to be motivated to do your will. It's in your name that we pray, amen. So the story continues, and for the work and the ministry of the spreading of God's kingdom to continue, some things need to happen. Some questions need to be answered. And some of those questions are answered for the disciples here in chapter 1. The first question that needs to be answered for them is, what is the resurrection? What? Who is Jesus? What is this state of a resurrection? What is it? I mean, as you think about the spread of Christianity, its origin and then its rapid spreading around the world, central to Christianity is the claim that Jesus Christ was raised from the grave, that Jesus' death on the cross was sacrificial for us in that we all, because we have sinned against God, had a major sin debt that we could pay with our own lives and be separated from God for eternity or someone else would have to pay it for us. And Jesus Christ paid that debt for us when he died on the cross for us And that this sacrifice was acceptable to God is indicated by the fact that God raised Jesus Christ from the grave. So the church, as it grew and it spread, it formed around that central belief and they began spreading and preaching a message concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And they were so convinced of the truth of the resurrection that many of them were willing to what? Die. You think about the strength of a conviction that would lead you to die for that conviction. I mean, that must be a strong conviction. You must be sure of what you saw, right? If you're willing to die for the fact that Jesus came back to life from the grave, you must be sure that he came back to life. And if you go back and you read the end of Luke, and you should, because again, this is really one volume, right? The gospel of Luke, then moving into the book of Acts. Uh, Well, Luke ends... With the disciples gathered together in a room. So, very similar here. Acts begins a little bit with them in a room. Luke ends with them in a room. And this is after Jesus died and was raised. And the disciples have not seen Jesus raised yet, but they've heard that it happened. And so, in this meeting where they're together, who shows up? Jesus shows up and he literally shows up. He doesn't knock on the door, he just shows up among them. Now, kids, if you were gathered together and you had heard that Jesus was raised from the grave, but you hadn't seen him, and you're gathered together in one of your houses together talking about it, and then all of a sudden, Jesus just shows up in the middle of you, what are you going to do? Freak out. Freak out. Yes, that's exactly what the disciples did. It uses uh, Greek language from the first century to make that point, but it's, that's what happened. They freaked out. They were terrified. Understandably so, of course. And Jesus says, and they think he was a ghost. It says that in Luke. They thought he was a ghost. And Jesus presented himself to them and said, touch, feel. Ghosts don't have flesh and bones. This is what Jesus says to them. And I love this. If you go back and read, it's Luke chapter 24 at the end. There's this line. I love it. So Jesus presents himself, lets the disciples feel him and say, okay, this is is flesh and bone here. It says, while they were in joyful disbelief, I love that phrase, right? Joyful disbelief. You know what that's like, right? That, oh, I cannot believe this is happening. You know, that state of I believe it and I don't believe it, I don't know how to explain this, and it's joyful, that's what it says that they were experiencing in the while they were in the state of joyful disbelief, Jesus said, hey, look what else, watch this. He asks them, do you have any food? And he eats it. And again, this is all to allow them to apprehend the reality of the resurrection, that yes, Jesus really is alive. There's something different. He just appeared to us like a ghost, but he's flesh and bones, and he can eat. And he spent 40 days with them. And what did it say, verse 3? He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. So the significance of Jesus' time with the disciples, those 40 days, wasn't just about teaching them extra stuff. Surely Jesus taught, or presumably so, the Bible doesn't really share much about what he taught them during that time, but of fundamental importance is the confidence that they would have in understanding what the resurrection of Jesus Christ was. I mean, you think if Jesus had not appeared to them or appeared to them once, doubt would seemingly be likely to plague them through all of this ministry. Are we we sure what we experienced was an actual resurrection? Are you sure about that? Did we actually ever see him eat anything? <laughs> you, know, you get what I'm saying? So the confidence that was given to the disciples that allowed them to go boldly and preach a message concerning the imminent bod- or the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ—they were so convinced of it that they were willing to die. It's because Jesus presented Himself and proved it to them. So, who is Jesus? What about this resurrection? What are we to do with it? That was given and settled for the disciples. But then the next thing is, okay, Okay, now what? What do we do? What's next? What's our mission? And it begins with Jesus saying, wait in Jerusalem. You know of John's baptism with water, which is about repentance, which is about turning to God. You're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, much of the book of Acts deals with the Holy Spirit, its power. um, And there's the phrase that comes up routinely in the book of Acts, baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're not going to spend a tremendous amount of time on it this morning because we will have other opportunities throughout this book of Acts, the series, to get into the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But let me at least least say that this is a a doctrinal issue that divides the church. There are some that say that there are three works of the Holy Spirit, if you will. There is the initial work of the Holy Spirit that draws you to repentance, there is the, subs- the second work of the Holy Spirit, which is the indwelling, where you're given the Holy Spirit and he lives within you. But then there is this third work of the Holy Spirit that enables you to be effective in mission, and that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what many church denominations would say, and it's understanding- understandable why they get that. You read the book of Acts, and you see this special outpouring of God's Spirit upon his believers, beginning in Pentecost, and then throughout the book of Acts, you see this thing called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where uh, people speak in tongues, different languages, and it's a very miraculous sign and display of God's power. If you read the book of Acts in one setting, sitting, I think you'll begin to see a pattern emerge regarding the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I think it will answer some of your doctrinal questions about that. But let me just say this, and there will be opportunity for us to get into this more. And if you have some questions, and if you do come from a different doctrinal perspective, we can can talk certainly more about this and, and really get into it. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit as used in Luke and as done by God was a sign that God had accepted the Gentiles on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. And they thus share fully and equally in the blessing of belonging to God's family. Look for that when you read through the book of Acts. That the significance of the baptism of the Holy Spirit for the Gentiles is received by the Jews who, for example, in Acts chapter 15 at uh, the Council of Jerusalem where they're trying to settle this question. What do we do with the Gentiles? Do they have to become Jewish to become Christian? What, what do we do with all the dietary, the religious holidays, everything that was a part of our Jewish you know, uh, heritage and our faith? What do we do with that? Does all that come forward? And what about the Gentiles? And one of the ways they answered that was they said, they received the Holy Spirit exactly like we did. Just like we received it at Pentecost, what happened to us, that same thing happened to the Gentiles. They've been accepted by God fully and equally as we have. Therefore, we don't need to make them Jews. We don't have to graft them into our story. God has done so by his Spirit. And that was the basis for the first Christians to go, what do we do about the Gentiles? Are they like us? Do they have to become like us? Are we on equal footing here? And the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the special way that it happened in the first century with these first Christians was a sign to the Jewish men and women that the Gentiles were included. You have more questions about that? I'm sure you do. We can talk about them throughout this series. So Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem, you're going to be given the Holy Spirit. And then they ask a question. All right, so are you at this time now, is it the time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? For those of you that were here at when we went through the book of Mark, one of the expectations for Jewish men and women concerning the Messiah was that when the Messiah came, he would do What? Drive out the enemy oppressors, drive out Rome, and restore Israel to its glory as a powerful nation. And all the nations would be blessed, but there would be a coming to Israel as the center of the world, if you will, where God and his people were. And they missed that, right? The first time around, they realized that Jesus wasn't the conquering king. He was a suffering servant, and his kingdom has come, but it's different and better at the same time than we ever could imagine. But now here, so he dies, he raises from the grave, but the question's still there. Okay, now, now that all that's happened, and now you have this resurrected body, is now the time? Are you going to restore the kingdom now? And Jesus doesn't say no directly directly. He just says, it's not for you to know when. God the Father has fixed that by his own authority, but you will receive power. You will receive the Holy Spirit. Because you, you can imagine, that's part of their question too, right? Okay, are you, is, is now the strength of God going to be manifested on earth to end all evils? Is the kingdom now going to be built and all these wicked people will be punished and evil will no longer, you know, where's our strength, where's our power? So Jesus, the kingdom, not, not what you're thinking, I'm not going to restore Israel, but you will receive power. And not only is it not that I'm going to build a kingdom that people come to, you are going to be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Samaria Really, Samaria? What do Jewish people think about Samaritans? Generally, they don't like them. Long-standing history there of Samaritans and the Jews fighting, and um, so in, in Acts chapter one, verse eight, that's really kind of the thematic verse for the entire book of Acts. Acts isn't structured where there's like a clear thesis. But most scholars agree that Acts 1-8 serves as the basic outline for the entirety of the book of Acts. Because as this story unfolds, you will see how they are given the Holy Spirit. And first they become witnesses in Jerusalem. That's where Pentecost happens. And they preach the message and thousands of people repent and turn to the Lord. And then they move on geographically to Judea and Samaria. And that is understood to be the same geographic area. But the the reason that Samaria is included, because not only is the gospel and the kingdom of God going to spread geographically, it's also going to cross ethnic lines. And the gospel is the good news and the hope of the Gentiles, even the Samaritans, who many Jews did not like. And that's the book of Acts, the beginning up until about chapter 8, you see it in Jerusalem. Then about 9 through 11, you see Judea and Samaria, and then towards the end of the Book of Acts, you see the gospel going all the way to Rome, to Caesar himself. Rome kind of representing the metaphorical ends of the earth. And even the way the book of Acts ends, you see how the gospel is not even going to stop there. It's going to keep going. The last thing that we see in terms of this moving on, okay, so what do we do with Jesus? What do we do with the kingdom of God and our mission? We see how these things are being answered, right, and they're getting direction on this. The third thing that they must move on from may be the most difficult one. I, I don't know. But Luke spends over half of this chapter talking about who? Judas. And I think for me the story of Judas had been the footnote in a sense to the story of Jesus Christ. I mean, yes, he betrayed Jesus, but the story of Jesus' betrayal ends in victory and the defeat of death and sin, and he raises from the grave. And so I, I don't know, for me, the story of Judas, I, I don't know, just kind of a footnote thing. But Judas was a friend to the disciples. He was a partner in ministry. He shared in the ministry. They trusted him with the money. Presumably, they loved Judas, had many good days with Judas, suffered with Judas, laughed with Judas, broke bread with Judas. And he betrayed them all, all of them, not just Jesus, all of them. And then not only did he betray them, remember, this is a friend, okay? He killed himself. In a public and gruesome way, he hung himself, but it obviously didn't, something broke, and he fell, and I mean, this is where the kids woke up, right? His guts spilled out. How do you move on from that? Imagine us. We're a little bit bigger than 120 people, but that's the size of this church here in Jerusalem, about 120 people. Maybe they weren't counting the kids, so maybe it's literally our size. Imagine if one of us, who we loved, one of our leaders, who we loved and worked with, trusted our money to. So let's imagine it's Jack Martin. (laughs) Jack's not the only person that we trust our money to. But imagine they betray us in the worst sort of way, and now we're dealing with not only the loss that comes from betrayal, but he kills himself. How are we going to move on from that? those of you that have experienced betrayal, how do you move on? But they must move on. Now, I've described a situation that the book of Acts does not really record, but I think it's right for us to assume that in moving on with Judas, it's not just a matter of formality. If we got to find, we had 12 before, we need to get 12 again. I mean, there's no... They could have moved on with 11. The Lord did not give him instructions. Well, it's not written that the Lord gave him instructions. You must have 12. Of course, there's significance in 12 with the 12 tribes of Israel and whatnot. But again, I don't think that this is just, I think it's right for us to consider how hard of a situation this would have been for them. So Peter stands up. So they're, they're meeting. They, Jesus ascends and uh, they're meeting and they're praying. And during this Peter stands up and says, we got to replace Judas. We need somebody who's been a witness from the very beginning. So that was the qualifications. They must have been there at the beginning with John's baptism, where Jesus marked the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And they need to have been with us to the resurrection. And we need to call them among us so that they can, like us, be a witness of all that we have seen and heard. And it's interesting, Peter quotes Psalms here. And you perhaps might have already noticed this, but in the New Testament, you'll notice that uh, the apostles, the, the New Testament writers, often they'll take a little bit of liberty with the passages in the Old Testament that they're quoting. Have you ever done that? Have you ever read like where, uh, you know, like for example, here in Psalms, and you go back and you read that passage in Psalms, you're like, wait a minute, the context isn't really the same here, and it doesn't seem to be saying what Peter is saying here, but. That's just kind of a side note. Yes, the New Testament writers and the apostles assumed a kind of authority and liberty when applying things out of the Old Testament. Um, And anyways, but here Peter takes this passage in Psalm and he applies it to the situation of Judas, first beginning with may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. That's kind of the reference to the the field and what happened and all that kind of stuff. But then, and I love the way my Bible has this structure just from a, a typography standpoint that you have... In my Bible, it has the, the may his, can't become desolate. Then on the next line down, it has the, just the word and. And then it has this line all by itself. Let another take his office. I think that is remarkably significant in light of betrayal. What is one of the hardest things to do if you've been betrayed? Trust. To let another take that office. Take that place in your life again. It's the hardest thing to move on, right? In fact, you will likely go to great lengths to protect yourself from ever being betrayed again, which likely means not letting somebody back in to that role or that position or that level of trust that you gave this other. I think this is remarkably profound. So, how did they move on? They trusted in the Lord. It's not not insignificant to me that we read this in verse 24, that they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which one of these two you have chosen to take place in this ministry. Yeah, when you've been betrayed and you're thinking about letting somebody back into that role, you're going to go, how can I ever trust this person again? How can I ever trust somebody in this situation again? And maybe you can't at first, but you can trust in the Lord. You can trust in his sovereignty and his goodness and trust the fact that though you may not know what's in that person's heart, the Lord does. And you can trust him and you can act, ask him to act on your behalf for your good and his glory And you can do so with the confidence that comes from that. So in conclusion this morning, I'm excited about unpacking the rest of the book of Acts. And as the story continues, we see that how Jesus supplies the proof, the power, and the perseverance needed to follow him and make disciples of all the nations. I love that in the beginning of Acts, we see how Jesus proved to his disciples that he was alive. One of the things I love about Christianity is that it is a come and see, put us to the test kind of religion. It's not a don't look behind the curtain kind of thing, if you've watched The Wizard of Oz, right? Now, Christianity is certainly about having faith. But often the mistake we make, and a tactic of skeptics, is to mock Christianity and say it's just a fairy tale. This whole thing, you just got to have faith, which means believing in something that you know isn't true. Just kind of this wishful thinking. Well, that's a misunderstanding of faith. But there is an element, the central part of our faith, that is in the category of you can't prove it. You have to believe it and trust. And here's what it is. At the center of the gospel is the claim that your sins will be forgiven by God because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Can God prove that to you? Prove in the, the sense of 100% certainty. That's not, that's not the kind of thing that can be proved. It can be believed because you trust God. But how do you know that he's going to forgive you ever since sins? What empirical test could you be shown... That would go, oh, okay, I see, now I believe. No, no, you just have to believe God or not that he will forgive you of his sins. But here's the question, why should you believe him? You should believe him because he said he was gonna die and be raised from the grave, and he was. Why should the first followers of Jesus Christ believe this message? They were given proofs, not of the claim that your sins are gonna be forgiven, but many other proofs. That would give them the confidence that Jesus is trustworthy and I can believe him. I can place my faith in him. He says he will forgive me of my sins. Why should I believe him? Well, first he said he would be killed and raised from the grave. He did. He said we would be given the Holy Spirit and we were. I should believe in him. It is not foolish of me to place my faith in Jesus Christ. Christianity is very unique in this respect in terms of a world religion standpoint. It is claims, and it is evidence. So for the skeptic here among us, or just the Christian with doubts, your doubts are welcomed, and praise the Lord that he provides very good reasons to believe in him and trust in him. The other thing about Christianity that we need is we need to persevere in life uh, and, and persevere in mission. You know, the Christian life kind of has a cyclical nature to it where, uh, well, let's just go back to the, the disciples' experience. There was Jesus' teaching that he would be killed, and Jesus' teaching that he would also be raised from the grave. Well, they didn't really get it at first, but even, let's just, put, Jesus was killed, and then what did they have to do? They had to wait, and then he was raised from the grave, and then they got to see. Faith certainly grows from that, but then Jesus says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit and what do they have to do? Wait. And then he is given the Holy Spirit. They are given the Holy Spirit. In this passage, they're watching Jesus ascend into heaven, and the angels say what to him? To the, to the crowd. Why are you looking? The way he went, he's going to come back the exact same way. And we're waiting. Should we have hope and should we persevere? Yes. Yes. Because just as Jesus died and was raised, just as he promised the Holy Spirit and it was given, he will return in the way that he said, and we are right to have hope and confidence and persevere. So not only can we persevere through the times of waiting because of what God has done, but we also can persevere because of the power that we've been given in the Holy Spirit. So in the times of waiting, and many of you perhaps are in a time of waiting. That's if I were to ask you, describe to me your life. It just feels like I'm waiting. So in the waiting or in the working, we must trust in God and rely on the Holy Spirit's power to bring about God's will in our life. And it is often hard to trust in the Lord in times of waiting. So this morning... Let us all repent of our sins and draw near to Jesus Christ. And for those of you that have yet to turn to the Lord, may today be the day that your sins are forgiven and you were brought into God's family. Perhaps you've been working tirelessly under your own strength to make yourself good. And maybe today is the day where you stop trying to create a righteousness for your own, but you turn to the Lord and receive the free gift of salvation. And then enjoy belonging to God's family and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. And perhaps some of you need the encouragement this morning to continue to wait or perhaps to move on in light of betrayal or hardship. And may the grace and the comfort of God be sufficient for you. And may He empower you by His Spirit also to trust Him. Though you may not be able to trust people, you can trust in the Lord, for he is good and he knows all things. Amen? Amen. Josiah, would you come?